Schwab Advisor Services is proud to support the RIA Edge podcast and equally proud to support independent financial advisors like you. In a challenging year, how did 68% of firms surveyed in Schwab's RIA benchmarking study meet or exceed their new client goals? By following key success factors, such as leveraging new technology, adapting strategies to win new business and stay connected with their clients, while also attracting and developing the right talent. The Schwab RIA benchmarking study is just one of many ways they provide you with the insights and resources needed to succeed and grow. Get the full picture at advisorservices.schwab.com. All right, welcome to the RA Edge podcast. This is Mark Bruno, the Managing Director of the Wealth Management Group at Informa. And we are thrilled to have a very special guest here today, someone that I've known for years, haven't talked to in a little bit, but Catherine Williams, Head of Practice Management at DFA. Catherine, thank you so much for joining. I appreciate it. Hi, Mark. It's great to be here. It has been a couple of years. Uh, I don't think that we've spoken <laughs> since I've been in this seat, right? And it's been an interesting couple of years. So I'm looking forward to catching up and getting into a lot of the different research that you and the team have worked on. I think that's actually where we first got connected. There's some sort of bizarre sub-community within the wealth management community of people who produced you know, research, benchmarking studies, and have really devoted a good part of their career to practice management. So uh, you know, we connected years ago and really, really, really excited to get you connected with our audience here at Informa and Wealth Management. So before we jump in, Catherine, if you wouldn't mind, could you just tell us a little bit about your role, some of the areas that you focus on, and also any overview of research? We'll talk a little bit about your deals and succession survey here today, but if you wouldn't mind just a summary of the primary research projects you work on, I think that'd be really valuable for our audience. Yeah, happy to. You know, we are a global practice management team. So we're delivering practice management, not just within the U.S., which is, of course, where we're going to primarily focus our conversation today, but around the globe. And we're, we conduct it in a couple of ways. First and foremost, we are engaging with the advisors we work with to help them across all aspects of their business through consulting and conferences and all kinds of deliverables, but certainly the cornerstone of the team and really the, the genesis of practice management is around the data. If you're familiar with Dimensional, you know that that is in our DNA. We cannot help ourselves. We love the data. And so 13 years ago, we embarked on a global advisor study, which is the which is all about benchmarking the advisor's business. And then about seven years ago, we added in the global investor study, which is all about the advisor's end clients. It's a white label client engagement, client satisfaction study. And those are the two primary bodies that we gather data from. Between those two studies, we capture nearly a million pieces of data a year. We've had nearly 90,000 end clients in the global investor study, and we've had over 4,000 firms over the 13 years or so that have done the advisor study. So I often joke, like we, you know, we could back up the dump truck of data. <laughs> we've got a lot of it. Um, and it's been really interesting, particularly these last few years, to begin pulling together that multi-year look, right? This idea that it doesn't, that a firm doesn't become sort of an overnight success or the data in one year is not necessarily representative of what is going on in that business. So our one of our key areas that we focus on these days is really thinking about that multi-year uh, trend, if you will, around the data. So spending lots of time in both those areas. I appreciate that. It's amazing how much data you collect and also you know, how much actual intelligence you provide, right? Everybody has data, um, but turning it into easily digestible, you know, impactful you know, findings, that that's a different thing. And you guys have done a phenomenal job with that. So thank you. Um, you've helped a lot of people who are probably listening here today. Um, I'm really looking forward to diving in specifically on the M&A side here today. Um, you know, M&A has been, when you think about the, the RIA 
channel probably the easiest topic to see and talk about over the last several <laughs> years. Right? There's obviously been a tremendous amount of activity. We know that there have been hundreds of deals that have taken place, but we'd love to maybe just get your take on where we are now. Um, when you look at some of the M&A activity that has taken place year to date in 2023, what have been some of the primary changes right this year compared yeah. with you know, the last several years when you feel like every year is just another record year of M&A activity? <laughs> It has been, and and this is an area that, as we are talking with both buyers and sellers uh, that are, you know, depending on what they're trying to solve for, we've been examining the M&A landscape for a number of years. And particularly here with 2023, we do continue to see some of the behaviors or some of the changes that started to show up last year, obviously, when you now, you know, if you have a challenging market environment, um, different, you know, talent is moving around those can those can all impact it has impact the MA landscape and so specifically i think with this year a couple of observations um first of all valuations they remain quite strong we have not really seen a significant softening of valuations where we have seen some changes year to date have been more on that deal structure side and this is particularly i would say more of the benefit for the seller um we see some longer timelines kicking in around that deal structure which is designed uh, if you can as you can imagine to help the sellers really um, try and, and the buyers as well sort of allow for some rebound, allow for some uh, recuperating of um, you know some of the the assets, some of the growth that maybe the market has been taking away or client attrition has been taking away. So that's one thing we've definitely observed. I think another area that we've been watching is this: the number of firms who are doing multiple deals. You know, it wasn't that long ago. Let's take the strategic or, you know, national aggregators out of the equation for just a moment, but it really wasn't that long ago that, you know, you might see a deal, a firm regionally do a deal per year. And really the number of multiple deals that are happening continues to expand. I think Fidelity in particular, I was talking to Laura Delaney and she said that nearly 70% of the deals um, that were done in 2022 were by firms who had done at least three deals. So that's something we're definitely continuing to see. And I think a driver of that is that, you know, if you're a firm that says, look, we want to grow through acquisition, we're going to build sort of the chassis to make that happen, both in people, technology, systems, and processes. Once you do that a couple of times, you know, we're obviously we're big on momentum here at Dimensional and you start seeing that kick in. And so that's really beginning to show up. And so, uh, it, which is, I think, great. It's a, you know, it's a nice opportunity for um, even the more regionally based organizations to continue to grow. And then I think the last thing we've we continue to observe, but it has I think has really amplified here in 2023. Um, I'll start first with what we're seeing generally across something that we're seeing across the high performing firms in our global advisor study. They are more likely to have a wider uh, set of services available to their clients, and in fact, a great and then as well, a greater percentage of their clients are going to take advantage of those services. So that expansion of services even though we haven't necessarily seen that show up in changes in fees, which would be a whole nother conversation on a different day. Um, but so if you're an organization that either through an effort to retain the clients, maybe you're moving upstream with clients, clients have gotten more complex and you need to be delivering more services, a path to get there is to align yourself with a partner of some kind that can both provide intellectual as well as systems and technology to allow you to expand business. I mean, probably the most evident example of 
that has been what I would say is a bit of an uptick in the acquisition of CPA firms. We've seen that mm -hmm. Savant just has done a few creative planning, of course, um, purchasing um, Bergen KDV. So it really is, you know, something that we're seeing on that expansion side. And that continues, I would say, to be an uptick here in 2023. Appreciate that. And there, there's a lot there to unpack. And I think one of the points that you made that I wanted to come back to is just on the, the firms that have done multiple acquisitions um, or plan to do multiple acquisitions. Um, if we exclude the aggregators and the professional buyers, right, and we look more at what a sort of traditional um, RIA would would look like if they're in you know growth mode, um, yeah, I'm curious. I mean, the firms that are looking to do more, um, what are they doing right, <laughs> right? And I know that sounds like a very <laughs> simple question, but it's M and A is not for everyone. Um, and I know it sounds like every other day on wealthmanagement.com we're reporting on a new acquisition. It sounds like everyone's doing it, right? Um, and we've talked about the sort of FOMO, right, of the firms yeah. that have not done deals. But you know, 90 plus percent of RAs haven't done deals and probably shouldn't for that matter. Right. Um, so the firms that are doing deals, what would you say a little bit, uh, other than the fact that they might be structured to do this, what is sort of motivating their growth? What is their sort of longer term vision that they're looking to accomplish through m and Yeah, it's interesting. I, you know, I think it's something that has absolutely continued to evolve. Um, you know, I would say I'll start with, you know, just we, and we've talked about, we touched on this a moment ago, um, around just talking about succession and where succession is a driver for this activity. And so if you're on the acquiring side, how can you be a solution for mm -hmm. that firm that where, you know, hopefully everyone's familiar with the G1, G2 terminology, but that sure. founder that needs to move, I think the firms that are getting it done and are able to execute, even for that succession solution, there's a couple things we see. Number one, they are absolutely looking beyond the numbers. Um, look, these are highly valued businesses. You can look at that, you know, look at that PL, look at that statement, and everything looks beautiful, maybe even pristine. But the question I always ask the seller is what are you willing to give up? They might be writing you a really lovely check. They should be writing you a really lovely check. Yeah. But what are you actually having to give up on day one? And 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 what does that look like? And, and just be very, very clear on that. Um, and the good acquirers out there are really great at helping sellers kind of talk through that and get, get in alignment, if you will. Um, on the acquiring side, you know, the question I often ask buyers is, again, look at that book of client. Look at that. Look at those demographics. Look at the services they're getting. Look at the just the opportunity with those clients. Are they clients that in any other mechanism would you be willing to take them on? I unfortunately get phone calls from firms that are in a post-transaction environment, and there's a set of clients that they just they're trying to round peg square hole because they just really didn't go deep around. Are we actually going to be able to sustain the service and the experience and you know really make these clients marquee clients? So I think that's an example of, of what we're seeing. And then I think part and parcel to that growth still rules the day. Um, yeah. If you, you know, you have to be as an acquirer, you have to show it's a little bit of that. Remember when we we're in school, you had to show your work, <laughs> which I always <laughs> hated to do. I always wanted to just give the answer, you know, and so, right. <laughs> and so, you know, they, these, uh, the acquiring businesses, even if you're only doing one or two deals out of the year, 
the sellers want to see an organic um, muscle built in that business. Now, you as an acquirer may be helping to solve for some of the growth challenges those sellers are having, um, which is fantastic. But the sellers themselves also need to show like, look, we've got our arms around our clients. We're we're managing a high share, if not 100% share of wallet. Um, we've, begin to, we've begun to engage in next gen. All these things are going to, at least from a perception standpoint, add to the value of your business. And so, you know, this it's the sellers are not off the hook on that growth very much rules on on both sides of that and then i'm going to use this word that we use a lot i tried to count how many times this word was used at our deals and succession conference in february and i lost track culture is still a huge factor i i recently wrote a linkedin article about how you know if you're not careful it can kind of look like that kitchen junk drawer that we all have i hopefully we all have it i don't think i'm the only one um, and a lot You're of stuff alone. gets dumped into that. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for admitting that. I appreciate that. And it's, you know, but it's, you have to be really, really careful around that. Um, you know, very rarely if I get a phone call or a member of my team gets a phone call from a firm that's in a post-transaction situation and there's some, there's some rubs, there's some challenges, some struggles. It's very rarely around, um, you know, we got to pick a CRM or, you know, we we're trying to uh, figure out our fee structure in this newly aligned an organization. It usually comes down to the culture piece and how people are engaging. And you think about the fact that certainly the last few years, we've been able to demonstrate that you can have a highly productive, highly efficient talent force that's not all sitting in the same office, right? Um, and, and you know, you can be, you can work remotely, do all that, but what are you giving up? And then when you start doing acquisitions that are outside of your, you know, your home office or your main, your primary community, all of those factors really kick in. So that, that culture piece, um, it's a bit of a dumping ground, but it for sure is something to really pay close attention to. No, that is for sure. I actually would love to spend maybe a minute on that point too. Um, yeah, and, and it, I think it, you know, culture is obviously a huge part of a deal being successful. Uh, maybe the most important part, but there are lots of other yeah. elements too. And I would say, you know, we spend <laughs> a lot of time talking about deals, you know, when they're announced, but we very rarely, and we're guilty of this on the media side, we very rarely have ever come back to them a year later and say, yeah, how's it going? Um, and <laughs> You know, I do ask those questions quite a bit, whether it's on the podcast or at the RA Edge conference back in May. And it's really amazing. But I think it, people are at a point now where we have several years to look back on. And we've heard more about how the majority of deals haven't been successful. Uh, maybe they've been financially successful for a seller, right? And that's how he or she was defining success up front. But over time, did one plus one equal more than two, right? Outside of just a pure sort of you know merger arbitrage play, right? Did right, you build right. a better, more vibrant, more viable growing entity by combining these two firms? So if you look at the firms that have done it well, what are they doing right? So I think first and foremost, they have, they are absolutely clear on what a good fit looks like. And I'm speaking about this from the perspective of and of the acquirer. Mm -hmm. They have absolutely they've really taken the time and they're they believe strongly that not every firm is going to be a fit with them. So they've got really strong clarity. And that goes all the way out to, as you heard me talk a few minutes ago, the kinds of clients that they want to take on. Yeah. So, and it sounds like basic blocking and tackling, but it is really amazing, especially because there is, you know, through 
the media and obviously through all the activity we're seeing, there's more robust tracking of what's happening. So it's catching the attention of, of a lot of firms um, that are trying to grow. Now, in you know, MA activity is not and not a replacement for that organic growth piece. And that again, sure. you know, is a different piece. But I think those firms have gotten really clear. They're they're willing to say in what is really kind of a crowded field, to be honest with you, right? I mean, just like you have to differentiate differentiate yourself when you're going after that end client, you also now need to differentiate yourself as a um as an acquirer. And so they've they've gotten really clear on that and they're willing to to walk away pretty quickly. Um in our deals and succession survey earlier this year, we saw that the average time for deals from the time that you, you know, you might enter, um, you know, into an initial agreement and then through acquisition has really come down to between five and a half to six months. So I'm, I'm, I'm choosing to think that that's not sort of panic selling and buying or anything like that, that it's really about everyone getting much more clear on who it is that they would like to align with. Cause there's a lot of options out there. I think these firms are absolutely set up from a from a fiscal from a financial standpoint whether it's an outside um, private equity private capital um, opportunity that has given them um, the cash or they're just you know they've just got a really healthy cash balance in the organization that allows them to be opportunistic they may um, they may be willing to they're able to if you will to move a deal forward and and do that in um, on the on the lending or the financial the the funding side if you will pretty quickly and I think that that is that's really important for sure. Um, but those, those are the ones that I think, you know, and then at the end of the day, the last thing that I absolutely see in play with these organizations that are conducting, going after multiple deals, they have dedicated headcount to this. They have dedicated talent in their organizations. And that's not just the big firms. I mean, we're seeing M&A activity happening in organizations that are three to four million annual revenue, but they've allocated um, dedicated time to it. I often say uh, to firms, you know, this is not something you can pick up on at three o'clock on a Friday afternoon. If you right. want to be an acquirer, you got to kick a lot of tires, you got to kiss a lot of frogs, as we often yeah. say, yeah. and that takes time. And so when I hear from an organization that says, oh yeah, we we want to, we want to do a couple of deals this year. Uh, and I ask, okay, who's, who's going to be sourcing those opportunities, talking with them, taking them through that process. And it's the person who already raised their hand to say that I'm the CEO and the CCO, and I'm the, I'm the primary advisor in the business. That's a little bit of a red flag. And I think sellers are getting much more aware and sophisticated and and are asking some of these kinds of questions, you know, sort of that reverse due diligence that we that we talk about a lot. Which is a good thing, actually. And you know, I think that's one of the it reasons is. we do you know, this podcast is why we do, you know, what we do at our edge in general is we want to make sure that the industry is a little bit more educated, you know, going into whether it's an MA process or any other type of um and really just sort of understanding or you know maybe a more accurate way to describe it what is the language that we should all be speaking, right? Uh, yeah. Going into a deal, for example, thinking, you know, you're valuing your business on a multiple of revenue. Somebody else is valuing on a multiple of EBITDA, right? You're not in the same zip code. Uh, <laughs> you kind of have different ways of thinking about the universe. So I think the closer we can get, the more research you do, the more content we create, hopefully the easier we're making it for everyone. Um, I do want to pick up on one word that you mentioned before too. You, you use the word options, right? Um, and I think that that's something that's worth discussing as well. I think there are more 
options when it comes to M&A than ever before. Um, and largely, I think that's a good thing. Um, I think, you know, there's obviously traditional M&A. We haven't really talked about, you know, tuck-ins or, you know, aqua hires, um, but there's a lot more yeah. activity happening there. There's more in the minority you know, investment space. Um, we're seeing more you know, sub-acquisitions. I'm curious, when you look ahead, right, to the second half of 2023, and I can't believe we're almost in September, so I have to stop I know. the second half, right? <laughs> um, but you look into 2024, what do you see motivating the majority of M&A activity and even valuations you know, over the next you know, six to 18 months? So I think, you know, and it's a, it's a few things that I've already mentioned around firms wanting to grow. We do see some pivotal moments in terms of size of organizations where they're, you know, they really began bumping up against their ability to continue to grow in a meaningful fashion, right? We see that in our study, you know, your firm, you know, I think probably the first one you hit is probably around that, you know, I'll use AUM. Um, 150, 200 million. And then when we see firms that are starting to get to that five to six, maybe even 700 million right in there, um, they're, they're bumping up another one against another um, ceiling, so to speak. And then believe it or not, right, our billion dollar firms, those are just tweeners now. Yeah. <laughs> they're not even, sure. you know, there's so many of them. And so in the, in, and when you start getting into those areas, it's not just um, the, the lack of growth or the lack of ability to continue to grow at the rate that they want is not just because they, you know, they can't fill the, fill their pipeline fast enough. It also starts showing up in the form of dedicated, you know, C-suite management, um, investment, deep, deep, deep investment in technology. And so all these things create opportunities if you're on the, if you're an acquirer to position yourself to be a solution for those things. But the one thing that I would add, I don't know that we've talked a lot about this, and this really comes down to, the talent within the business. And when we look of, when we look forward, we're going to continue to see, I believe, a couple of things. One, there is a war for talent. Talent is moving around. When we look in even our global advisor study and we ask advisors, why did they lose clients? Death is the number one answer, mm -hmm. continues to be the number one answer. Um, our yeah. clients are old and they're dying on us. But um, the second reason is that firm lost an advisor and took clients with them. Talk about a double whammy. And yeah. so a lot of organizations, particularly if G1 is beginning to move equity and ownership, leadership to G2, investing in that talent that you've worked so hard to get to make sure that they remain a part of the organization, that they see themselves long-term in the business, I think is going to continue to be a driving factor. So what does that look like on in the on the M&A landscape? Well, first of all, it can certainly mean the actual acquisition of talent. And so what I mean by that is with G1 in particular, and actually some firms, I'm working with a couple of firms right now where G1's long gone. So we're talking about G2, but right. in both scenarios, they have to start thinking about what does that next generation look like? And they don't, they're not quite sure they have it within their business. So they think they may need to go and acquire it. And by the way, what a single founder or single owner was able to do in the business and all the skills and acumen that they brought to, to grow that business is unlikely to be um, a single G2 or a single G3, right? It's probably going to be two or three folks. And we talk a lot about this at our Deals and Succession Conference. So finding that set of people 
um, that are going to be able to fulfill and really take over that business. Some folks feel like they've got that internally where they feel like they may have that talent internally. An outside partner can absolutely help, not just from the financing side, but also how do you grow, develop, and make sure that those advisors have long-term opportunity? And so hitching your wagon to a um, to a partner that can you know, bring in a lot of resources for marketing and growth and also just talent development, that is an area that we continue to hear a lot about, is really significant. And some of that talent that, that happens by, hey, we're just going to go sit in a slightly larger organization that has really great growth and really fantastic advisors so we can learn from them. But in some some cases, it's no, we really want to be part of an organization that has true dedicated curriculum and momentum to really help advisors develop their skills. So I think that's going to continue to show up. It has a succession lens to it for sure along the way, but not always. You know, a lot of the firms that are looking to partner or to sell and be part of a different of a large organization have a 10 or 15 year time frame um, in their minds. And so it's not just to solve for helping a, a founder exit, if you will. I'm glad you mentioned that because I think that was, if you went back to maybe 2019, 2020, where you really started to see the number of transactions accelerate. Um, yeah. A lot of those deals were motivated by succession. They were really more <clears throat> exit planning than you know, deal planning in a lot of ways or succession planning, I should say. Um, and I think you know, at least what I've observed over the last couple of months, you do see more you know, sellers looking at opportunities to grow, right? And you did say 10 to 15 years, and that's absolutely right. Um, we're not just talking about selling a business, transitioning over the next 12 months, and then going to play golf or you know, set sail, right, for the remainder <laughs> of you know, your life. Um, I think you you really are seeing more firms that are actively looking to grow and looking for partners that can help them do that. That being said, you know, the demographic issue in the wealth management space, you know, while it's changed a little, it hasn't changed much, right? Um, the majority yeah. of the practicing advisors right now are over the age of 50. Um, I think the average age is 55 or you know, 56, um, depending yeah. on the source you use. So we will see more and more you know, succession plans and transitions over the next decade. It's just natural. Um, I saw an interesting stat that came from one of your studies that um, the number or the percentage of firms that have a succession plan in place is 32% now down from 44% in 2020. Mm -hmm. So you see double digits, right? And now we're getting statistically significant. I have to ask what is happening? Shouldn't it be going the other way? <laughs> it should. And it, and it was however slow, you know, you think about <laughs> what's the analogy of watching paint dry that, yeah. you know, that, that stat was a little bit like that. Um, you know, I'm, I think I would be remiss as someone who, you know, we geek out on the data all day long and we run these surveys and these studies. I think, you know, one factor for sure could simply be the mix of, of participants in the survey from one year to yeah. the next. I think we should own that. There's probably a little bit of noise in the data, but yeah, I think, and, but certainly when I talk with, you know, I had a recent opportunity to even uh, to sit down and talk with Lisa Salvi at, at Schwab and their benchmark study. We, um, you know, a lot of our great, um, professional colleagues in the industry run a lot of studies. And so, you know, I think the numbers are kind of hanging out there for, for most everyone. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I think there's a few things. One, one thing we've seen when an organization, it has taken on some sort of, um, we'll call it an inorganic transaction of some kind, tuck in, buy, maybe they're the, even the seller. There's always a bit of a, of a lag or, or that's actually a better word would be drag <laughs> right. on um, other areas of the business. And in fact, we just, we're, we're just uh, pulling and, and getting ready to release our 2023 study data and specifically looking at 
high performing firms, which is a very specific criteria within our study. And we do see that for those for those high performing firms that conducted some sort of M&A activity in 2022, they actually lagged a little bit relative to AUM growth um, on on the organic side, because it just, it, you know, you can you can only sort of, you know, work one muscle at a time, so to speak, even if you've got dedicated people and this is not your first deal, there's uh, maybe you can even just call it a sort of a distraction. So I think to the degree that all these deals were happening in 2020, 2021, you know, I think it's taken a moment for some of these firms to recalibrate. Um, certainly when I talk to organizations that are interested in, you know, doing more than one deal and they're not, again, outsetting those national firms aside, you know, you can, to use a rather dramatic word, you can only inflict an acquisition on a on a firm so frequently, right? You have to take a moment to make sure the organization resets, realigns, um, and that everything's in place. That takes energy and calories that may or may not otherwise been deployed around the organic piece. And so with that in mind, thinking about, you know, what how, are we are we taking our eye off the succession ball because on the flip side of that, we've been focused on the organic growth. And so I think there's a little bit of that happening as well. Um, I also do, when I talk with these organizations, it goes back to what I said a few minutes ago, I think they are really wondering and trying to figure out, do I have the talent inside? We know, statistically speaking, that advisors very much prefer to do an uh, internal transition of some kind. And if they don't feel like they've got that talent in-house, that can cause a little bit of paralysis for a while while they try to figure out what that external partner might potentially look like to help with that. They're not mutually exclusive. You can absolutely, and I think that's a big change. Three or four years ago, it would have been you're either internal or external, and neither of the two shall meet, but that is absolutely no longer the case. Um, you can even call it a hybrid solution, if you will, very much in play. And I think organizations that are willing to lean in around that, I think they might find that that succession solution presents itself a little easier, a little more easily. We do know, um, I had the opportunity um within the organization here with, and then work partnering with Marco DiMaggio um, to do some deeper research around some of this data multi-year, as I mentioned at the top of our time together. And one thing we do see is that organizations that feel that they have solved their succession plan, even if they're not going to execute it for another 10 or 15 years, they tend to have, um, you know, they not, not 10, they have higher organic growth rates. And I think there's something to that no longer being a distraction. I think it also says that that means they probably got talent installed in their business that's also helping to grow the business before they take it over. Yeah, it's, uh, it is a, a tell, right, of a firm yeah. that you know, is, is not only well run, but has a vision, right, that is maybe three, five, 10 years. Um, so I think yeah, you you provided a lot of insight as, into why that number might have dropped. And I think you know, all of all of the above. Right? Yeah. Well, uh, and I, mean, I would more than one thing can be true and is true for sure. Absolutely. And and you know what? <laughs> it's been kind of fun. And and we've actually done a couple of sessions at our deals and succession conference around this. I've had a number of uh sellers, um, founders, G1, if you will, that sold their business. And their original intent was to sell and exit, you know, within a two or three year time frame. And now they have had such a rejuvenation around the business. They're freed yeah. up 
right? And you probably have seen this as well. And so they're like, wait a second, I actually don't want to ride off into the sunset in three years. I, my timeline might now you obviously want to be super transparent and on point about that and make sure that, you know, everything can be shifted accordingly. But it's been a lot of, it's it's kind of been fun to talk to some of those advisors that are finding themselves having a renewed energy around the business in that post-transaction environment, such that they're actually maybe a little bit more of the sell and stay as opposed to the sell mm-hmm. and go. Yeah. And I think that's a an amazing point, one that we touch on every once in a while here, but I think it's worth reinforcing. Um, I think you know, if you're looking at you know, a, a transaction of some sort, if you're looking at a sale, um, it, everybody always tends to think about, all right, what are my top three priorities? My employees, my clients, and getting the right value for my business. Yeah. Uh, but y- you should really look at it as an opportunity to say, what do I want to be doing right, um, with my That's time right. and my life? Because if you want to just manage money, it might be a great opportunity to do that. You want to work with your and I think it's best really, clients, you can do that, right? It's really up to you. Absolutely. I think, and I think it's really important to emphasize, I'm, I'm working with a firm right now that there was a very specific timeline associated with when G1 uh, was going to exit. And that, of course, you know, G1 to G2 typically involves a, there's a book of clients there. Mm-hmm. Um, G1 has decided to stretch out that time frame. They didn't really communicate that (laughs) to G2 and, and, you know, and G2 is sort of saying, well, wait a second, you know, I, like, I've been hanging out here. I've been waiting for this to happen. So you've got to be super candid about that. You've got to remain in deep, deep communication about it. Um, I absolutely see organizations that for sure, they pivot around that, right? They, it's, it, you just, but you don't wait until it becomes a problem. If you are, if you're a, if you're a founder, if you're, if you're that, if you're the, the um, successor, is that the right word? <laughs> um, that's, you know, you have to keep that communication going. Now, with that said, talent's moving around. And one of the reasons we see talent moving around is because they were promised between a five or seven or even 10 year time frame that mm-hmm. they would have not only a meaningful equity in the business, but potentially take over the business. It's not in their mind coming to fruition. They're gone. And so the, you know, this is a, this is a challenge and a one that I think we'll have to continue to navigate. I think we'll need a part two on talent sure right. <laughs> uh, at some point in the next few months maybe at the end of the year just to look back and see how things netted out but kevin thank you so much for stopping by the podcast and bigger picture also just for all the work that you do uh dimensional you guys do a tremendous amount of you know research you provide amazing practice management tools and events so uh on behalf of the industry right, thank you for that we really do appreciate it it's our pleasure and and thanks for the opportunity to catch up with you hopefully we'll uh our paths will continue to cross and I'm happy to um, answer any follow-up questions that might come. Absolutely. Well, again, Catherine, thank you so much for stopping by. I appreciate it. We touched on a lot here today, um, but we definitely touched on what I think are some of the most important issues driving M&A over the first eight months of 2023. Um, And your look ahead across the second half and into 2024 was incredibly insightful. So thank you, Catherine. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in today. And on behalf of the Wealth Management Team at Informa, I'm Mark Bruno. Thank you very much for stopping by and we'll see you all at the next episode of the RIA Edge podcast. Take care. Schwab Advisor Services is proud to support the RIA Edge podcast and equally proud to support independent financial advisors like you. In a challenging year, how did 68% of firms surveyed in Schwab's RIA benchmarking study meet or exceed their new client goals? By following key success factors such as leveraging new technology, adapting strategies to win new business and stay connected with their clients while also attracting and developing the right talent. 
The Schwab RIA benchmarking study is just one of many ways they provide you with the insights and resources needed to succeed and grow. Get the full picture at advisorservices.schwab.com.